0: This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. medicine I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Dr. Nirala Jacobi, a Bachelor of Health Science and naturopath from the USA who graduated from Bastyr University in 1998 with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. She practiced as a primary care physician in Montana for seven years before arriving in Australia. Nirala is considered one of Australia's leading experts in the natural treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO a common cause of irritable bowel syndrome. In 2013, she participated in the Delphi panel at the first SIBO symposium in Portland, Oregon, and will be a presenter at this year's event. She is also the main organiser of the first Australian SIBO summit held in Melbourne and Sydney in October 2016. Nirala is the medical director for CyboTest, an online testing and educational service for practitioners. She lectures nationally and internationally about the assessment and treatment of Cybo. Welcome, Nirala. How are you? I'm great.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's wonderful to
0: be here. Our pleasure. Now, I first have to ask you, we're going to be delving into small intestinal bowel overgrowth, what it means, how you can test for it, how we treat it. But I first think we need to go into what is it?
1: Yeah, SIBO is a condition where the normal colonic bacteria has somehow migrated into the small intestine for various reasons. And it's it causes about 60% of IBS is, is considered to be SIBO or suspected to be SIBO. So it's a huge problem for um, a big population subset that has IBS and um, doesn't know that it's an actual bacterial overgrowth and is therefore very treatable.
0: So we're talking about fermentative bacteria that normally reside in the colon, migrating up mm-hmm. into the small intestine. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or they are stagnant there for various reasons, such as chronic um, proton pump inhibitor use ah, yes. or uh, <laughs> other dysfunctions in the upper gut. But. The most common cause of SIBO actually is post-infectious gastroenteritis type situation where um, you have a a case of gastro and it causes bacterial uh, overgrowth. But also, it it actually, that's not the bacteria that is the SIBO bacteria. That's more a situation where there is a, a toxic release from bacteria um, such as Campylobacter and Shigella and some of the normal ones that cause food poisoning. Yeah. And uh, what happens there is that the body, in its attempt to flush out this uh, toxin called cytolethal distending, distending toxin, actually creates an antibody accidentally to uh, a nerve fiber called vinculin. And what happens is, the uh, vinculin is part of the normal motility of the small intestine called the migrating motor complex. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when you have a situation where you've basically paralyzed the migrating motor complex, then you don't have the normal cleansing wave that sweeps through the small intestine every 90 minutes on an empty stomach. And then you have a situation bacterial overgrowth. Um, just normally happening because they're not normally flushed out. But again, it's important to distinguish that it's not that bacteria like Campylobacter or Shigella, which are known pathogens, reside in the small intestine. It's just normal bacteria such as Klebsiella, Proteus. Um, Enterobacter, those types of species uh, or or genuses that we see up, um, in the small intestine.
0: Nerala, from just what you said there, I've I've got ten different questions firing floating around in my head right now, and I th- I think the first one I need to know about is what is vinculin?
1: Yeah, so vinculin is. Um a membrane cytoskeletal protein that's found um, in the small intestinal wall that's part of the enteric nervous system. And this cytoskeletal protein is really important for the nerves there to stretch out and connect to each other so that this smooth cleansing wave can occur. And that's known as the migrating motor complex. So it's this basically what the migrating motor complex is, is an assurance um, that no residual bacteria remain in the small intestine when they're really damaging. So uh, what happens is a very very um, sequential wave occurs in the small intestine that's sort of imperceptible to us. Mm. Um sometimes people, you know, like a growling, hunger growling that can that's oh, often goodness. the migrating motor. Yeah. Yep. And so what happens is it's an autoimmune reaction where the body, in its attempt to to wash out this poison that's um, generated by the bacteria that caused the gastroenteritis um, or, or food poisoning, it creates an, an antibody to vinculin it mistakenly because there's a there's a component on the toxin of the bacteria that caused the food poisoning that looks very similar to uh, to vinculin.
0: So it's like a, so, a cross reactivity.
1: Yes, exactly. So it's a, it, it's truly a case of mistaken identity. Mm. It, it attacks the wrong uh, target
0: right and and when you're saying this is implicated in irritable bowel syndrome, so is this talking about the what is is it forty percent of irritable bowel syndrome cases that are attributable to an infectious cause? is that right?
1: Um, well, Dr. Pimentel actually did a study and and what they found is that the most the most in, um, common risk factor yeah. for uh, the development of IBS was actually um gastroenter a case of gastro, right? So case a case of an so yep. infectious kind of situation. That increased your um the development of post- infectious IBS sevenfold. So that is the most common denominator for huh. a lot of IBS cases. Right. And, and you know some there's some differences in opinions or or um also, Demographics, but about sixty to seventy, sometimes more cases of IBS are actually SIBO. So that has a huge implication, obviously, for um, natural healthcare practitioners and GPs because we see so much IBS in our practice.
0: You know, I'm I'm seeing a, a sort of parallel here between the work of um, Professor Alan Ebringer and his work with uh, ankylosing spondylitis. And a mm. cross reactivity mm-hmm. with Klebsiella.
1: This is a little different in that it's. Um, I think it's a little different in that it's not the bacteria themselves. It's the po- It's the toxin that they release, yes. right? right? That causes this. The body to um, to to basically create an, an antibody against that poison, that toxin. But in it, yeah, then causes this kind of cross reactivity. But not, you know, the thing is, Andrew. It's not all cases are. Have an autoimmune component. Right. You know, we see plenty of people, as I've mentioned, that have been on proton pump inhibitors yeah. for sometimes years, yeah. and cause that's one of the most important risk factors for the development of SIBO. Mm.
0: So, what about with young people? We're talking about the major thing being gastro. Obviously, they haven't been on PPIs. Heaven forbid for years, at least not mm-hmm. yet. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it twenty. Well, actually,
1: years. a lot of kids, a lot of kids that I've seen in my practice were early on. On PPI, oh, my goodness. Um, with for reflux and for all sorts of. Um, digestive conditions as, as babies, you know, people, babies that have uh, reflux and stuff. So um, there are, you know, it's not unheard of to have, to see children on PPI yeah. in your practice.
0: And what about identification of, of SIBO? Um, you, you know, I'm, I would gather that it hasn't reached the Rome criteria yet. Um, so how do you differentiate it mm-hmm. between other GIT disorders?
1: Well, actually, it has reached the Rome criteria oh. it's made some um because the the development of the breast testing um that subsequently came out of that to, in order to help diagnose SIBO has come out of the Rome criteria oh, and really? um you know, so I think one important component there is um that Rome criteria really was set up also for the for the diagnosis of IBM. yeah right? and so certain um uh, you know disease these factors or symptom pictures have to be present for that? And certainly, that they exactly mirror IBS. So one one thing that we know is that if you if you're diagnosed with SIBO, the, the symptoms are virtually the same as anyone that sees pra- uh, patients in their practice. Yep. Basically, you're going to see um, postprandial um, bloating. You're going to see uh, very often abdominal hypersensitivity, alternating constipation, diarrhea. So it's very similar yeah. in, in its presentation. Mm-hmm.
0: So just for our listeners, it's Rome, as in the city-state, Romecriteria.org, and you can register there and access uh, all sorts of um, diagnostic criteria for functional gut disorders. That's an invaluable resource, along with things like the Bristol Stool Scale and things like that. So, Nerala. If this is an infectious agent and we're talking about gastro, how do you prevent it? Can it be prevented?
1: Well, um, you know, as being naturopathic practitioners, of course, we always have this um, idea of prevention in mind, which is wonderful. And I think the important thing here is we, we, I mean, yes, we can prevent it. The short answer is yes. Mm. If you're traveling and you tend to get gastro, um, then perhaps you you would want to take something like Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, you know, maybe I usually give my patients bitters or herbs that really stimulate um the motility of the upper gut yeah. because that's really the issue that you're you you do not want anything stagnant in the upper gut. Right. You really do want to move things along, you know, yep. um, as well as sort of well-known preventative uh, probiotics. I think I really have a have a role. And uh, so that's sort of my my recommendation, Dr. Pimentel, who, um, as I've mentioned, has really brought a lot of this into uh, the natural medicine arena. But also because you know, I think anything in in modern traditional a long time to really uh, take root there. So he was very welcomed in in the natural medicine circles. And so the SIBO symposium that he has attended were always very well was very well received there. And so we've we've really started to disseminate a lot of this information in our um, you know integrated medical circles. And I think that's really helped a lot because now we see that patients are coming into their doctor's offices and they understand SIBO and we still see a lot of practitioners that just are not familiar with this condition
0: okay but you mentioned commonalities there between uh, irritable bowel syndrome and notwithstanding that we don't have the capacity to diagnose um uh, medical conditions but but i'm seeing uh, parallels there with irritable bowel syndrome with regards to the fluctuation of al- alternating constipation diarrhea borborygmus um, foul smelling stool that you might have that sort of thing what are the key differentials mm-hmm. that you see in your case history that might go, look, that's SIBO and not, um, mm. let's say, campylobacter, let's say the active infection?
1: Well, active infection is usually quite self-limiting, right? So you're going to have a case and then it and then it sort of peters out and then you go back to normal. Um, and then often there is this sort of uh, break in between active infection and the development of SIBO that can take months, actually. But... I think the key differentiating factors that I see in my practice and that are very that are sort of like little light bulb moments, oh hey wait a minute this is actually sibo, um would be things like patient reports, you know, I have constipation, I'm supposed to take fiber and fiber just loads me up. Right. Right. What happens there? The fiber gets fermented by a residual normal bacteria that are not meant to be in the small intestine but are in the small intestine, right? And another uh, clue might be that they received a case of uh, or received a course of antibiotics for an unrelated condition, but their digestive symptoms improved temporarily. Right? I often ask that. So, and then there are sort of you know associated conditions such as interstitial cystitis and acne rosacea and restless leg syndrome that are very highly associated.
0: Restless leg syndrome.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow! Yeah, so the, and and things obviously like diabetic um, enter, uh, enteropathy, and um, you know I mentioned fibromyalgia, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatosis. So there's a, a host, but you know those conditions are more broad. But but especially interstitial cystitis, why? Because it's another mucoside, like mucosal disturbance, right? Um, and with acne rosacea, that's a huge connection there. Um, so there, those conditions, I would always specifically ask about digestive disorders. Yep. And and do you have bloating right after meals? How quickly after meals? So those would be more differentiating factors between somebody who has maybe large intestinal dysbiosis, where we see bloating that just occurs towards the end of the day. You know, their clothes are fitting a bit uh, tighter at the end of the day. I mean, that's, that can just be a functional digestive disorder, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, I mean, typically we will see some hypersensitivity and some abdominal pain as well. Yeah, with SIBO.
0: yeah, um, okay, so how would you test then for SIBO versus let's go back to IBS? How would you differentiate between yeah. those?
1: It's a really good question because no test is perfect, right? And, um, one thing I will say here for practitioners listening you can't do a stool test and know anything about the small intestine. No, the the, the <laughs> Situation is so vastly different. They're like two different countries. Yeah. It's completely different. Yeah. So sometimes you get little clues on a CDSA or a complete digestive stool analysis that you you know that could lead you to think, okay, maybe I should investigate this a little further. But the only really handy tool that I use in my practice and recommend practitioners use is a lactulose breath test and a glucose breath test. Right. And the reason for that is that the bacteria that cause sibo again they're they're normally found in the large intestine so we're we'll, we're talking about Aromonas and klebsiella and proteus and they're they're gas producers right they produce when they ferment residual food that's not been swept out um from the small intestine or because the brush border um, has been damaged and therefore you don't you lack the enzymes to digest the residual food they just have a field day with that, right? And in their process of fermentation, they produce hydrogen gas. And hydrogen da- gas is very damaging to the microvilli of the small intestine. So they not only cause damage there, but they also um, cause something called deconjugation of bile acids. And so it's eventually you're going right. to see, um, you know, issues with malabsorption of potential fatty acids and fat-soluble vitamins. But back to testing, so... What, whilst they're doing their fermentation, um, you can actually capture hydrogen gas beautifully on a breath test. Mm-hmm. And how that's done is the patient goes through a period of um, a day. If they're diarrhea dominant, which is usually the case with hydrogen dominant, um, They or like let's say alternating patterns. They're not always having just chronic diarrhea, but more of an alternating pattern with diarrhea dominant. They will very often be hydrogen dominant, and so what happens is they fast for a day before the test, and then the um, no, I'm sorry, they fast overnight, um, but they have a prep diet the day before in an attempt to sort of um, have a bacterial reduction, and then they get up in the the next morning and they do this breath test, which involves drinking a lactulose substrate, which. Causes a, a temporary blo- sort of bloom of the bacteria, mm. and then they capture their breath every twenty minutes. And then, depending on where we see this um, this uh, rise in hydrogen, we can determine if it's in the proximal ileum, if it's in you know where we are looking at the small intestine. So it's really it's a great useful tool. It's not a hundred percent accurate, right? It's, no no test is a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll also say that the other bacteria that often is present in SIBO is called Nethanobrevibacter smithii, which is not really a bacteria per se. It's in a whole different class in and of itself. It's in a class called archaea, which yep. include a lot of the thermophiles. You know, these are bacteria that really love extreme environments. And there also, you know, uh, I mean, years ago, we, we've known about methan- methanobrevibacter smithii in its role as an obesogen because it's so I- effective in extracting calories from food. So it causes methane or it- methane rise. Yep. So we, at SIBO test, we measure hydrogen and methane gases. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a third gas which is hydrogen sulfide which we cannot really assess for yet using a breath test.
0: Right. Which would just be horrible.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: <God>. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean it's just a third gas yeah. that that is often present and it's those are usually the extreme egg smelling gaseous mm. emissions that people talk about. Yep. Um, but it's just not the we're not able to capture that yet using um, our technology.
0: Okay, so I have to ask. There, um, there was a breath test for Helicobacter pylori. How does this cross-react mm-hmm. or confuse that diagnosis?
1: Okay, totally different, right? Because with that breath test, you're actually giving urease as a substrate. It's not. It's a completely different test, yep. right? So you're you're not measuring hydrogen and methane, and you're not doing a timed event like that. So even though it's still a breast test, but it's not that breast test. It's a completely different focus.
0: Right. And and so you mentioned that the Rome criteria has taken this up now, and, it, and it's really gaining ground. Where is the body of evidence leaning to now? Like Like, what are we looking at here?
1: Well, first of all, as you know, I mean – Even at the last um, Biocertical Research Symposium, which was really fantastic, I mean, all the speakers, it's in all of our sort of consciousness now that the microbiome and bacterial um, involvement in pretty much every physiological function in the human body, it's just this incredible excitement right now in medicine, I feel, that we are starting to really understand some really fundamental um, issues with the microbiome. and. So that's that's having said that, that's really exciting. Yeah. What the issue is with SIBO, and there is still a lot of, um, there's not a lot of agreements across the board in terms of standardization of the test. Sure. Right. So there, there are, but there's a huge body of of evidence in terms of studies and research. Researches everything from stunted growth in children to The development of gallstone to as it relates to SIBO, Mm. right? Um, So there's a huge amount of research that's really um, gone into uh, looking at SIBO and because IDS has been around for, you know, for quite some time and without much, uh, without many tools that that conventional medicine really has to offer Mm. for IDS sufferers. So I think there is, that's really the impetus behind that because it's such a prevalent condition. That we are seeing a lot of research going into SIBO, so I think we're going to get more information as time goes on. But there are, there is just, there is not really a standardization. But of course, we are, we know the general framework of timing of the test and the substrates to use and the grams to of of the substrate and all of that. And there is some consensus, you know, about using lactulose breast test only versus um, lactulose and glucose, glucose um, in in succession. Yeah. You never viewed them together. Yeah. And then there are other schools of thought that really um, are completely against the lactulose breath test alone and only think of that as a as an assessment for motility. But I think, generally speaking, um, you know, there. I think it's a really useful test for practitioners to. Um, to give them some guiding guidance as to, okay, is this SIBO? Because SIBO is really a different condition from large intestinal dysbiosis mm-hmm. or um, even just candida, although very often with SIBO, you can have cFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth, right? Oh. So those two conditions often occur together.
0: Right. The area of the microbiome is just just mm-hmm. starting to sort of see on the horizon of research now. What I think is interesting is um, when you see uh, such eminent scientists as uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's working in standard gastroenterology, paediatric gastroenterology, uh, and he's oh. famed for his for his work with um, celiac disease and wheat sensitivity and non gluten wheat um, non gluten wheat sensitivity. Um, when he starts to mention things like SIBO, that's when you start to take notice. And I I had a really interesting interview with him at the symposium, and he was talking about it. And I was going, wow, so this is is Mm. bigger than what I thought it was for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I listened to your podcast, if it was the one that you recently did. Mm. It was a great interview.
2: And I have a
1: huge amount of respect for Dr. Fasano. I think he's you know, I had I respect for anyone that goes out on a limb and and, and is curious yeah. and, and like and really follows that because a lot of those scientists are, are they they cop a huge amount of slack initially, yeah. you know, when they put when they put forth their theory. Yeah. And I think and one really fascinating um part of that of course was where he talked about that there are really two conditions uh, where we see the release of vonulin. And one of them is SIBO. so. For me, that just cemented the fact that me as a as a clinician, um, I'm going to invest. If, if I see somebody with um, systemic symptoms, perhaps that's generated by their digestive tract, I'm going to be thinking about testing for SIBO, and I'm going to be think, thinking about testing for zonulin. Mm. Um, and and the connection and, between leaky gut and, and SIBO is very well established. Yeah.
0: So this is the thing: is like, what do you test for, and what how does that change your treatment plan? Um, I, I, I think I will dub Dr. Alessio Fasano the god of the gut. But uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, I think he's the god of zonulin for sure. Uh, but I think there's lo- there's it's a multi a deity ruled kingdom, I think, (laughs) or, or, you know, or a place because there's a lot of amazing people that have done so much amazing work. But, you know, I mean, back to the testing, the reason why you would test for SIBO, because I get this question actually a lot from practitioners because, you know, I do a lot of webinars and I do a lot of masterclasses around this. And one of the common questions is, why don't I just treat for it, right? I mean, if I think it's SIBO, why wouldn't I just treat for it, treat it and then see if it resolves? But the problem here is that if you just treat it without really understanding, um, A, is it methane dominant? Um, B, is it sort of a combination of hydrogen and methane? What's really going on? And, and C, how high are those gas levels, right. right? So, for example, if you're if you're treating and you're seeing great results and you prematurely stop the treatment, um, you're going to have a relapse. And it's a very high rate of relapse. You know, Siebel is one of the most common relapsed conditions in the gut um, that, that we see. So I often say, look, get a baseline to understand, A, how high is your hydrogen level? Because that gives you an idea if you're dealing, what type of bacteria you're dealing with. If it's, highly, if it's very high in methane, you know it's methanogrevivacter smithii. You know that it also uses hydrogen to create methane. And so it gives you treatment guidelines because you're going to treat it, you're going to use different um, antimicrobials for methane-producing bacteria, I mean, for, for this condition than you would for hydrogen-dominant people. So it's a really different condition that requires different treatment.
0: So we really need to be testing a baseline before treatment uh, to aid in your... Uh dare I say the word, diagnosis, naturopathic diagnosis, whatever. Um, yes. And then you need to assessment. be... Assessment, Assessment, thank you. And then we need to be doing a, what are you talking about, three-month uh, during treatment or 3 months post-treatment? Yeah. Yep.
1: I look at it in terms of um, a protocol, mm. right? So I've developed a, and this has just come out of, um, you know, one of my... Uh, mentors or, or people that I really want to give a lot of credit for is Dr. Alison Seebecker. And Dr. Seebecker is a naturopathic colleague, another naturopathic doctor from the U S who, um, you know, I remember and you, and you asked me where, how, you know, how did I get into this? Well, actually it wasn't because I read Dr. Pimentel's book initially. It was really that I came, I went to, a, um, the American association of naturopathic physicians conference. I think it was 2011 or so, or maybe even 2010, and listened to her talk about SIBO, and I was just dumbfounded. I was just like, why did I, why have I never heard about this? Um, and so that really is what started the, the journey for me. And I think in retrospect, I was sort of like, you know, I mean, we all have patients that get better without treatment, and then there's just a subset that just doesn't. Yeah. And we're actually seeing more and more of these really kind of difficult cases. And I think those a lot of those cases that you think are gut-related and they're you think maybe they're candida or just simple dysbiosis and they just don't get better, I think a lot of those are SIBO. Yeah. So that is what sort of started it all for me. And she's been really instrumental in bringing that also to our attention in terms of the integrative medicine um, community. And uh, she's done a lot of podcasts, a lot of web... Uh, uh, websites and she is the author of the um, she's just actually writing a book natural treatment of SIBO that we're all um, anticipating and she has a website called SIBOinfo.com so there's a lot of information there but getting back to treatment so really there's two types of antimicrobials right so you have your conventional antimicrobial um, if you have a hydrogen dominant SIBO case uh, and you happen to be a GP, then you might want to consider using um, a course of Rifaximin or zyfaxin, which is an antibiotic that I actually think is a very good antibiotic because it's a biosoluble antibiotic and therefore doesn't, we don't see this type of dysbiosis that we typically see with other water-soluble or broad-spectrum types of antibiotics. So it's a fairly safe antibiotic that's, that's really effective for killing off hydrogen, um, uh, producing bacteria. And for methane, conventional medicine isn't all, I, I mean, yes, there is an antibiotic called neomycin and that's often used in conjunction with rifaximin, but we don't see the the results with that. And it's actually much harder to treat methanobrevibacter, Smithii infection. So. What we do then, um, herbally, we have a huge plethora of of herbal of our herbal repertoire um, that that is really effective in treating sebum. And so, for your hydrogen producers, you you can use berberine-containing herbs such as Oregon grape, or um, golden seal, or um, coptis, or philodendron. So it's really that you know huge amount of of, of herbal pharmacopeia there that's very effective. Um, and then also um, pomegranate and maluca and horopito. Um, and so what I love about herbs is that you can really tailor it to every yeah, patient. If yeah. you think that patient has FIFO and SIBO, you can really beautifully combine something. And there's a lot of products on the market um, that, that are very effective in treating it herbally. And there was actually a study done by John, by Dr. Mullen in Johns Hopkins university that that clearly demonstrated that herbs are as effective as rifaximin. Now, when we talk about methanobrevibacter uh, smithii, or let's say methane-dominant seba, which is typically constipation-dominant, right? So studies have been done where animals were infused with methane gas, and and every single animal became constipated with the infusion of methane gas. So we know it's terribly constipating. and. The, what we have in our armamentarium is um garlic and oregano oil and uh cinnamon and things like that so there i think natural medicine really shines personally i just i think that this is really where we where we do shine in the treatment of digestive disorders so and what I have then also created is um the biphasic diet approach because what we know is that um Bacteria and, and, and archaea, well, not so much archaea, but the bacteria that produce hydrogen love to ferment fibers. And this is where the FODMAP diet really comes in very handy. But as you and I know, the FODMAP diet is not meant to be used long term, right? Because what, what are we doing? We're starving other bacteria as well. So the FODMAP diet is really designed to stop the fermentation, yeah. Process. Yeah. By these bacteria, right? But we want to have a, a beginning and an end because we need to also feed other bacteria that 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 really thrive on these fibers and fiber is very healthy, as we you know. But so what we do is um, I've created this what we what I call the biphasic diet, and it really should be called the triphasic diet because the biphasic diet is. Phase one is where I basically, you know, let's let's say that a patient comes to me and I think that I've tested them for SIBO. Yes, they have SIBO. So I start them off with a month on just extremely low fog maps. And, the, and I also include digestive healers, as we know, you know, things like glutamine and things like potentially turmeric and um, maybe zinc carnosine and uh, zinc in general, and probably also some digestive enzymes and potentially hydrochloric acid and things that we know what to, how to do as naturopaths. Um, and then after a month is up, then I move them into um, phase two, which that's when I start to utilize my antimicrobials. And I loosen up the diet to provoke a little bit of bacterial growth. And I found that that approach to be very effective. So then after another month, Uh, maybe four to six weeks of antimicrobial treatment. I then retest to make sure that SIBO is gone. And then I put them on something called Prokinetics. So Prokinetics is a class of either herbs or or, um, conventional medication that's meant to improve the motility of the small intestine so that you're really resetting this entire system.
0: Just... I mean, I know this goes right back to the beginning, but this smacks of, SIBO smacks of an issue with microbial resilience or an aberrance in microbial resilience. And this has been like well talked about with really good researchers like Martin Blazer and um, Fred Backup and um, Clara Belzer, all these fantastic researchers of the microbiota. I like the point that you're doing a baseline and a treatment but you did mention a couple of antibiotics there. How do you accomplish this if the groundswell isn't ready for Australian GPs to then prescribe um, these antibiotics for patients?
1: Well, um, Rifaximin just got um, FDA approved in America, right? So that usually is a good indication that, um, that Australia will follow, uh, follow suit.
0: Approved for SIBO?
1: So I proof of Oh right. Yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is definitely entering the realm of um the 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 conventional medical doctors. yeah, I actually, you know, at the Super Bowl in America, a huge sports event. They did have an ad for Retaxyl, which is like how mainstream can you get, right? Only in America. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like you know America is littered with with advertising yeah. advertisement for for medications, it's quite horrific. But um, but anyway, so yeah, so that's that's something that is beginning to really. Um, enter into the consciousness of, of the conventional medical of conventional medical practices here. That's definitely the case. Right. But, well, you know, it does take some time, and patients do tell me that they've told their, their practitioner, their GP, that they have fever, and they're like, what? Yeah. I've never heard yeah.
0: of it. Yeah, and certainly in Australia, it'll take ages. Yeah. yeah. What about the risk of, of initiating a serious infection like um, Clostridium difficile, C. diff?
1: You know me being an naturopathic doctor, so i'm i I actually am always championing the cause or the 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 use of natural treatment. so I'm not saying that um it's it's preferred over uh, that that antibiotics are preferred right. over natural treatments because natural treatments are just as effective right and probably will cause less harm in fact, mm. that is the title of my talk when I'm going to Portland, Oregon this year is like sort of let's remember that herbs are our, um, have been our champion for a long time. They're very effective. Um, I will say that the reason I brought up Rifaximin before is because, you know, there are a number of, of I mean, thousands of people who who could potentially be helped by Rifaximin, yeah. right? And because GPs are not trained in the use of herbs. Mm. Um, so that was my reason for bringing yeah. up conventional treatment because it it is really um, very, very helpful. And I personally, um, from what I understand rifaximin to be, I understand it to be an, an antibiotic that does not cause the typical dysbiosis and C. C. difficile that we see mm. um, with broad-spectrum antibiotics.
0: Right. Oh, so it's a narrow spectrum.
1: Well, it's a it's a complete, it's a different class of antibiotic. You know, it it actually gets dissolved in bile and therefore is only active in the small intestine. By the time it reaches the large intestine, it's ineffective, right? Gotcha. So it's, it doesn't cause that. Gotcha. I sound like an ad for refraction when I really want to be an
2: ad for herbs, right? So
0: <laughs> no, uh, but it, but, the, but but these so are salient points, and and practitioners need to mm-hmm. know them. So I mean, I think that's a really good point to know that you know yeah. it's basically. Um, done with by the time it reaches the f- the huge fermentative bowl yeah. of the of the colon. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, and I will say though that um, you know on my website sibotest dot com, any practitioner can can you know create a free account and and listen to a ninety minute webinar as to what is SIBO because I would never recommend anyone to just willy nilly treat um, SIBO even with rifaximin mm. because the recurrence rate is just too high and it's not worth it. Right, so. It's not that you that you just do that and then you're done invested and, and you move on to the next thing. It you do need to know what you're doing because you you still have not reset the migrating motor complex, yeah. right? So so that still is is important to do, and you still need to have some dietary um, recommendations handy for your patients so that they really minimize their risk of recurrence.
0: You know what? I I think this is a call to action for anybody interested in treating. I've got to say, any functional gut disorder to know at least when it's SIBO or SIBO and when it's not mm-hmm. is they need to, A, mm-hmm. log in to your website. Um, and So that's sibotest.com. Is it .au?
1: Yeah, so sibotest.com is our um, online testing service, and we are we really pride ourselves to be there for the practitioner. We have a lot of free educational resources because we really want to further the cause. We also have an online database it's searchable by any patient for a SIBO treating practitioner near them, and that's all free to the practitioner. And, you know, they can just get the information. They don't necessarily have to order through us, yeah. but they can just get the information so that they really understand how to treat it safely and effectively. And
0: I think also there's a, a, a SIBO summit happening in Kingscliff, correct?
1: No. The Kingscliff one, you're getting confused with the Australian Naturopathic Summit. Whoops. That's in Kingscliff. Um, The SIBO Summit is, um, I'm actually very excited about this summit. It's the first SIBO Summit in Australia. It's in Melbourne on October 8th um, and um, in Sydney October 10th. And it's myself, Dr. Siebecker, and Dr. Jason Horlach, who is certainly an undisputed expert in pre- and probiotic use in Australia. And he's uh, quite well known here as well. So it's this very well-rounded approach to... Um, to how to really uh, get a good handle on how to treat your patient. Additionally, we have some guest speakers and one of those guest speakers is Alyssa Tate, who's a naturopath in Brisbane, who um, does a lot of work with uh, adhesions because we haven't really touched on other risk factors for the development of fibroids. Oh. one of them being adhesions. From
2: abdominal develops,
1: surgery. Right? Yeah, exactly, or endometriosis. And where you create a scar tissue that adheres to the small intestine and creates sort of like a kink in the garden hose mm. type of situation where it's not, the motility is really impaired. And she um, will be talking about treatment of adhesions, and she is just fantastic. I've sent a lot of my patients to her for um, working to loosen these restrictions with so really great results. So I'm excited to have her present at the summit as well. And you can, if people are interested, they can just go to cbotest.com. There's a lot of information there about the summit.
0: And oh, great. Okay, so that was what I was going to ask: is how can they get in touch to register for the summit? Because I think that's going to be just mm-hmm. mandatory for for naturopaths to attend. <laughs> Has anybody looked at possible changes in the mucosal composition of the small versus the large bowel? Because there seems to be in the small bowel sort of one let let me say layer, whereas in the um, in the large bowel there are. People to be two layers, a, a, certainly a more robust mm-hmm. layer, as well as the quite liquid mm-hmm. or fluid layer. So, it, does there appear to be any changes in the composition composition of that mucus layers?
1: Well, what we do know is that um, the changes that occur uh, in when people have developed SIBO are very much um, related to the to the damage caused by the gases. Mm. Right, so the gases themselves are damaging to the microvilli, So these are the little villi on top of the villi. So where we see real issues with malabsorption, particularly with B12 and folic acid, zinc, and magnesium, um, as well as some central fatty acids due to this deconjugation of bile acids, that's another cause. Uh, So we know that that happens, and we also know that zonulin is released in bad cases of SIBO. So I would say that there are definite changes um, that that are indicative of SIBO, whether or not um, this, this there, there are any others. I'm not aware of that. I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm not aware of anything else specifically other than the damage that it causes. And, you know, the other thing about that is that we see actually a huge uh, release of, of interleukin-6 and um, 12 and other sort of inflammatory cytokines that are uh, undoubtedly involved in in what we think of as sort of systemic clues to to SIBO, and that would be fibromyalgia, as I've mentioned, and and other uh, conditions where where inflammatory cytokines are often present. So there is this interplay between systemic and local situation uh, as it relates to the mucosa that we don't fully understand yet. But it's it's we're seeing it sort of on mass with with. Things like autoimmunity, and there's, like I said initially when we began this interview, that there's just this tremendous excitement that I think you and I as, as, as you know, sort of holistic practitioners have, have known about for a long time, and our profession has known about this for a long time. But to actually see this um, really come out in research is just a tremendously exciting time for us.
0: Just so one question before we wrap up. Nirala, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many questions I need to ask, and, and we just have run out of time. But I'm just wondering, you said that SIBO could result in the release of zonulin. And I'm wondering if this might be that, that answer um, for those patients that suffer from a non-gluten wheat sensitivity, where it's not reacting specifically to the gluten, but they still are sensitive to wheat.
1: Yeah like I'm I'm not entirely sure I cannot answer that um definitively but you know there are other subsets um of of proteins that are non gluten related so this is more like wheat germ gluten yeah. and what I understand wheat germ gluten to do is more sort of like a, you know I mean I can't really intelligently talk about that cuz I I'm not entirely sure mm. but the way I understand it is that it does more like Sort of a direct damage to the intestinal lining, so there is still there's still like a like a damage, but that doesn't result in zonulin release. Because you can have all sorts of reactions that are not necessarily related to zonulin, right? right? So, what I would expect to see then, with with any condition that that has zonulin release as part of it, um, that we would see some systemic symptoms as a result of absorption of Things that aren't meant to be absorbed, and for those listeners who are who don't who maybe not follow us, but donulin is um, is a really integral part of keeping the tight junctions tight. So in between uh, gastrointestinal cells, so that we don't have any uh, anything absorbed into the body that's foreign. So when that gets damaged, we we start to see sort of intestinal permeability and in leaky gut, and then we start to see a host of problems associated with that involving the immune system and um, LPS absorption and all sorts of things that that can cause damage. So I can't really, you know, I don't feel qualified to answer that for sure because I have not come across that as as the cause for symptoms in a non-gluten weed sensitivity.
0: I really think that all practitioners out there need to log on to SiboTest dot com, and they need to register and download the free information that you have to offer, Narala. But I think also that it's it should be mandatory for all Australian practitioners to attend the Sibo Summit in October. I think it's going to be invaluable for their practices.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really great time to be involved in anything related to the to you know to the digestive tract because I, I feel like in some in some way we're being vindicated. You know, we've been talking about this for. Um, for a long time and, and we didn't have a name for it. We didn't know it was SIBO but um, I think that natural public medicine or any kind of um, holistic approach to, to SIBO and other digestive disorders um, really it's very timely. It's really important that we step up and we become very well versed in this condition so that we can not just help as many people as possible but also that that we you know showcase what, what's in, an, in, in our sort of natural um, armamentarium, you know, so I'm really excited to, to uh, be able to offer this to people and to also see where all this research goes. It's just fascinating. Mm.
0: Dr. Narala Jacobi, thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew.
0: This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, Please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of
2: natural medicine.